Psalm 6 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Treasury of David, Volume 1, by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm 6. Title. This psalm is commonly known as the first of the penitential psalms. Note. The other six are 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. End note. And certainly its language well becomes the lip of a penitent, for it expresses at once the sorrow, verses 3, 6, and 7, the humiliation, verses 2 and 4, and the hatred of sin, verse 8 which are the unfailing marks of the contrite spirit when it turns to God. O Holy Spirit, beget in us the true repentance which needeth not to be repented of. The title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician on Nigonoth upon Sheminith. Note, First Chronicles 15.21 End note. A Psalm of David That is, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, upon the eighth probably the octave. Some think it refers to a bass or tenor key, which would certainly be well adapted to the mournful ode, but we are not able to understand these old musical terms, and even the term Selah still remains untranslated. This, however, should be no difficulty in our way. We probably lose but very little by our ignorance, and it may serve to confirm our faith. It is a proof of the high antiquity of these psalms that they contain words, the meaning of which is lost even to the best scholars of the Hebrew language. Surely these are but incidental, accidental I might almost say, if I did not believe them to be designed by God, proofs of their being, what they profess to be, the ancient writings of King David of olden times. Division You will observe that the psalm is readily divided into two parts. First, there is the psalmist's plea in his great distress, reaching from the first to the end of the seventh verse. Then you have, from the eighth to the end, quite a different theme. The psalmist has changed his note. He leaves the minor key and betakes himself to sublimer strains. He tunes his note to the high key of confidence and declares that God hath heard his prayer and hath delivered him out of all his troubles. Exposition Verses 1-7 to seven. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, nor chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, Deliver my soul. O oh, save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Having read through the first division, 
in order to see it as a whole, we will now look at it verse by verse. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. The psalmist is very conscious that he deserves to be rebuked, and he feels, moreover, that the rebuke in some form or other must come upon him, if not for condemnation, yet for conviction and sanctification. Corn is cleansed with wind, and the soul with chastenings. It were folly to pray against the golden hand which enriches us by its blows. He does not ask that the rebuke may be totally withheld, for he might thus lose a blessing in disguise. But, Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger. If thou remindest me of my sin, it is good. But, oh, remind me not of it as one incensed against me, lest thy servant's heart should sink in despair. Thus saith Jeremiah, O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. I know that I must be chastened, and though I shrink from the rod, yet do I feel that it will be for my benefit. But, O oh, my God, chasten me not in thy hot displeasure, lest thy rod become a sword, and lest in smiting thou shouldest also kill. So may we pray that the chastisements of our gracious God, if they may not be entirely removed, may at least be sweetened by the consciousness that they are not in anger, but in his dear covenant love. Verses 2 and 3 Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. Though I deserve destruction, yet let thy mercy pity my frailty. This is the right way to plead with God if we would prevail. Urge not your goodness or your greatness, but plead your sin and your littleness. Cry, I am weak. Therefore, O Lord, give me strength, and crush me not. Send not forth the fury of thy tempest against so weak a vessel. Temper the wind to the shorn lamb. Be tender and pitiful to a poor withering flower, and break it not from its stem. Surely this is the plea that a sick man would urge to move the pity of his fellow, if he were striving with him. Deal gently with me, for I am weak. A sense of sin had so spoiled the psalmist's pride, so taken away his vaunted strength, that he found himself weak to obey the law, weak through the sorrow that was in him, too weak, perhaps, to lay hold on the promise. I am weak. The original may be read, I am one who droops, or withered like a blighted plant. Ah, beloved! We know what this means, for we, too, have seen our glory stained and our beauty like a faded flower. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. Here he prays for healing, not merely the mitigation of the ills he endured, but their entire removal and the curing of the wounds which had arisen therefrom. His bones were shaken, as the Hebrew has it, his terror had become so great that his very bones shook. Not only did his flesh quiver, but the bones, the solid pillars of the house of manhood, were made to tremble. My bones are shaken. Ah, when the soul has a sense of sin, it is enough to make the bones shake. It is enough to make a man's hair stand up on end to see the flames of hell beneath him, an angry God above him, 
and danger and doubt surrounding him. Well might he say, My bones are shaken. Lest, however, we should imagine that it was merely bodily sickness, although bodily sickness might be the outward sign, the psalmist goes on to say, My soul is also sore vexed. Soul trouble is the very soul of trouble. It matters not that the bones shake if the soul should be firm, but when the soul itself is also sore vexed, this is agony indeed. But thou, O Lord, how long? This sentence ends abruptly, for words failed, and grief drowned the little comfort which dawned upon him. The psalmist had still, however, some hope, but that hope was only in his God. He therefore cries, O Lord, how long? The coming of Christ into the soul in his priestly robes of grace is the grand hope of the penitent soul, and, indeed, in some form or other, Christ's appearance is, and ever has been, the hope of the saints. Calvin's favorite exclamation was, Domine usciuco, O Lord, how long! Nor could his sharpest pains, during a life of anguish, force from him any other word. Surely this is the cry of the saints under the altar, O Lord, how long! And this should be the cry of the saints waiting for the millennial glories. Why are his chariots so long in coming? Lord, how long! Those of us who have passed through conviction of sin knew what it was to count our minutes hours, and our hours years, while mercy delayed its coming. We watched for the dawn of grace, as they that watch for the morning. Earnestly did our anxious spirits ask, O Lord, how long? Verse 4. Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. As God's absence was the main cause of his misery, so his return would be enough to deliver him from his trouble. O save me for thy mercy's sake. He knows where to look, and what arm to lay hold upon. He does not lay hold on God's left hand of justice, but on his right hand of mercy. He knew his iniquity too well to think of merit, or appeal to anything but the grace of God. For thy mercy's sake. What a plea that is! How prevalent it is with God! If we turn to justice, what plea can we urge? But if we turn to mercy, we may still cry, notwithstanding the greatness of our guilt, Save me for thy mercy's sake. Observe how frequently David here pleads the name of Jehovah, which is always intended where the word Lord is given in capitals. Five times in four verses we here meet with it. Is it not proof that the glorious name is full of consolation to the tempted saint? Eternity, infinity, immutability, self-existence, are all in the name Jehovah, and all are full of comfort. Verse 5. And now David was in great fear of death, death temporal, and perhaps death eternal. Read the passage as you will, the following verse is full of power. For in death there is no remembrance of thee, in the grave who shall give thee thanks? Churchyards are silent places, the vaults of the sepulchre echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. O Lord, said he, if thou wilt spare me, 
I will praise thee. If I die, then must my mortal praise at least be suspended. And if I perish in hell, then thou wilt never have any thanksgiving from me. Songs of gratitude cannot rise from the flaming pit of hell. True, thou wilt doubtless be glorified, even in my eternal condemnation. But then, O Lord, I cannot glorify thee voluntarily, and among the sons of men there will be one heart less to bless thee. Ah, poor trembling sinners, may the Lord help you to use this forcible argument. It is for God's glory that a sinner should be saved. When we seek pardon, we are not asking God to do that which will stain his banner, or put a blot on his escutcheon. He delighteth in mercy. It is his peculiar, darling attribute. Mercy honors God. Do not we ourselves say, Mercy blesseth him that gives, and him that takes? And surely, in some diviner sense, this is true of God, who, when he gives mercy, glorifies himself. Verses 6 and 7 The psalmist gives a fearful description of his long agony. I am weary with my groaning. He had groaned till his throat was hoarse. He had cried for mercy till prayer became a labor. God's people may groan, but they may not grumble. Yea, they must groan, being burdened, or they will never shout in the day of deliverance. The next sentence, we think, is not accurately translated. It should be, I shall make my bed to swim every night, when nature needs rest, and when I am most alone with my God. That is to say, my grief is fearful even now, but if God do not soon save me, it will not stay of itself, but will increase until my tears will be so many that my bed itself shall swim. A description rather of what he feared would be than of what had actually taken place. May not our forebodings of future woe become arguments which faith may urge when seeking present mercy? I water my couch with tears. My eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. As an old man's eye grows dim with years, so, says David, my eye is grown red and feeble through weeping. Conviction sometimes has such an effect upon the body that even the outward organs are made to suffer. May not this explain some of the convulsions and hysterical attacks which have been experienced under convictions in the revivals in Ireland? Is it surprising that some should be smitten to the earth and begin to cry aloud, when we find that David himself made his bed to swim, and grew old while he was under the heavy hand of God? Ah, brethren, it is no light matter to feel oneself a sinner, condemned at the bar of God. The language of this psalm is not strained and forced, but perfectly natural to one in so sad a plight. Verses 8 to 10 Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Verse 8 Hitherto all has been mournful and disconsolate, but now... Your harps, ye trembling saints, down from the willows take. 
Ye must have times of weeping, but let them be short. Get ye up, get ye up from your dunghills. Cast aside your sackcloth and ashes. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. David has found peace, and rising from his knees he begins to sweep his house of the wicked. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. The best remedy for us against an evil man is a long space between us both. Get ye gone, I can have no fellowship with you. Repentance is a practical thing. It is not enough to bemoan the desecration of the temple of the heart. We must scourge out the buyers and sellers, and overturn the tables of the money-changers. A pardoned sinner will hate the sins which cost the Saviour his blood. Grace and sin are quarrelsome neighbors, and one or the other must go to the wall. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. What a fine Hebraism, and what grand poetry it is in English. He hath heard the voice of my weeping. Is there a voice in weeping? Does weeping speak? In what language doth it utter its meaning? Why, in that universal tongue which is known and understood in all the earth, and even in heaven above. When a man weeps, whether he be a Jew, or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free. It has the same meaning in it. Weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. It is an unstammering orator, needing no interpreter, but understood of all. Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood, even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers, and of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate intercession which will wear its way right surely to the very heart of mercy, despite the stony difficulties which obstruct the way. My God, I will weep when I cannot plead, for thou hearest the voice of my weeping. Verse 9. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Holy Spirit had wrought into the psalmist's mind the confidence that his prayer was heard. This is frequently the privilege of the saints. Praying the prayer of faith, they are often infallibly assured that they have prevailed with God. We read of Luther that, having on one occasion wrestled hard with God in prayer, he came leaping out of his closet, crying, Visimus, visimus, that is, we have conquered, we have prevailed with God. Assured confidence is no idle dream, for when the Holy Ghost bestows it upon us, we know its reality and could not doubt it, even though all men should deride our boldness. The Lord will receive my prayer. Here is past experience used for future encouragement. He hath, he will. Note this, O believer, and imitate its reasoning. Verse 10. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. This is rather a prophecy than an imprecation. It may be read in the future. All my enemies shall be ashamed and sore vexed. They shall return and be ashamed instantaneously, in a moment. Their doom shall come upon them suddenly. Death's day is doomsday, and both are sure and may be sudden. The Romans were wont to say, The feet of the avenging deity are shod with wool. With noiseless footsteps vengeance nears its victim, 
and sudden and overwhelming shall be its destroying stroke. If this were an imprecation, we must remember that the language of the old dispensation is not that of the new. We pray for our enemies, not against them. God have mercy on them, and bring them into the right way. Thus the psalm, like those which precede it, shews the different estates of the godly and the wicked. O Lord, let us be numbered with thy people, both now and for ever. End of Psalm 6